This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are starting on a little mini-series about the People's Republic of China under the leadership of Chairman Mao Zedong. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about three different but kind of interconnected events from this period. One is the Great Leap Forward, and that's what we're talking about today. The next one is the Great Famine, and we will end with a discussion of the Cultural Revolution. So to be clear, this is a just enormous chunk of Chinese history It spans decades, and on top of that, China is an enormous country that is not remotely monolithic. There are very major cultural distinctions among its provinces and the people who live there. There are a lot of people who were involved in some way who we won't specifically mention, and there are lots of other events that are kind of connected in some way, but not as closely. Uh, None of these episodes are meant to be an exhaustive accounting of every single person and action and consequence involved in this whole story. That's really true of, I guess, every episode that we do. But given the (laughs) scope of these, um, it seemed particularly worth mentioning, even though we are having basically a multi-part series on this. It is still not going to be an exhaustive recitation of every single fact. We will, however, list all the sources that were used in the show notes uh, if you want more detail later on. So the first of these three installments is the Great Leap Forward which was Mao's plan to revolutionize the Chinese economy and turn it into a communist utopia. So uh, for background, Mao Zedong was born in Hunan province on December 26th of 1893, when China was still under imperial rule. The emperor abdicated in 1912 following a revolution. And at that point, Mao was 18 years old. He trained as a teacher before working in a university library in Beijing, and while there, he became interested in Marxist philosophy. In 1921, he became a founder member of the Chinese Communist Party, also known as the CCP. Between 1923 and 1949, the CCP was sometimes allied with and sometimes at war with the Kuomintang National Party, or the KMT. 
The two parties united to drive warlords out of northern China, and they also united to fight Japan during the Second Sino-Japanese War, which ran from 1937 to 1945, so it ended right after World War II did. But between these two events and afterward, they were adversaries. After the Sino-Japanese War ended, the CCP and KMT went to war against each other. The CCP was victorious, and on October 1st of 1949, Mao founded the People's Republic of China. At this point, China was really a very poor and mostly agrarian nation, and it was recovering from years and years of war fought on its own soil. Its per capita gross domestic product was only a quarter of the United Kingdom's. The newly founded nation's government wanted to end poverty and famine and then put the Chinese economy on par with the UK. And at first, the government's primary goal was simply to recover from the war. There was widespread damage to both the nation's agricultural and industrial systems. And so the government set to work nationalizing the financial sector and other industries. And it also got help from the Soviet Union, which sent financial support and about 10,000 engineers to help bolster Chinese industry. In the process, China's economy moved from a capitalist supply and demand model to a socialist model. The Soviet Union also provided the basic blueprint for China's first phase of economical and industrial growth. Following the example of the Soviet Union's economy and focus on increasing its heavy industry, the People's Republic of China started its first five-year plan in 1953. This plan was meant to increase the nation's production of steel, coal, and iron, and to do this, China took control of various industries and just set really ambitious targets for growth. By 1956, virtually all the major industries in China were either state-owned or joint public-private enterprises. China also more than doubled, and in some cases more than tripled, its output of coal, pig iron, steel, and oil. At the same time, China turned its small family farms into collectives. So land and farm animals and equipment were all gathered up and redistributed and shared among all the agricultural workers. Families were allowed to keep a small farm plot for their own use so they could keep growing their own food. And by 1957, almost all of China's farms were part of a collective. Overall, these efforts in the first five-year plan were successful. Production was up, harvests were bountiful, and farmers who had been struggling with tiny plots of land and insufficient equipment now, for the most part, had the things they needed thanks to the redistribution efforts. But at the same time, This industrial expansion had really strained the overall Chinese economy. And on the agricultural front, the harvests were bigger, but the population got bigger, too. And pretty much across the board, people were working harder than before, so they needed to eat more food than before. So while the harvests were bigger, this didn't actually lead to a surplus the way it had been originally planned. Basically, industrial growth had outpaced what the agricultural growth could support, which is the problem that China was faced with trying to solve next. And before we get to that, hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes 
sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So to get to what China tried to do to match its cultural or its agricultural and its industrial growth. In 1956, Mao invited Chinese intellectuals to criticize the government and its policies. So the whole idea was that new ideas from the intellectual community were going to put China on the right path to modernization. And this campaign was known as the Hundred Flowers Campaign. Its slogan was, let a hundred flowers bloom and a hundred schools of thought contend. It's so poetic. It sounds sort of pretty does sound like a really good idea when you put it that way. Yeah, I, I could see where people would get behind it. However, that did not play out as planned. Uh, it took a while for people to speak up initially, but then when they did, they vocally and pretty pointedly criticized just about every single aspect of China's government and policy. A big undertone was that the government might be achieving its goals, but that the people were really suffering for it. In July of 1957, the government started cracking down on dissenters. People who had spoken against the government lost their jobs and went to prison or were sent to forced labor camps. So instead of making the government more open and encouraging dialogue, the Hundred Flowers campaign actually had the exact opposite effect. And this had two major consequences. One, a lot of great thinkers who were supposed to influence China's future direction were completely silenced. And two, whatever the government did next, people were probably not going to speak up about it or protest it in any overt way. Consequently, in 1958, nine years after coming to power, when Mao set down a new plan called the Great Leap Forward, nobody really objected to it, and there weren't really vocal protests even as things started to go wrong with it. 
The Great Leap Forward uh, was intended to move away from a Soviet-inspired model and into a truly Chinese system of communism. Rather than mostly focusing on heavy industry, as the Soviet Union did, it was going to revolutionize both industry and agriculture at the same time. The Great Leap Forward was partly a plan for progress and partly a propaganda campaign. The former was just a really incredibly ambitious five-year plan to fix the imbalance between industrial growth and agricultural growth. And the propaganda part included everything from an anti-rightist campaign that was meant to discredit all the people who had spoken out during the Hundred Flowers to a campaign for people to write new folk songs about China. So the goal was to surpass England in 15 years and to be economically on par with the United States in 30 years. A big part of this plan was fundamentally, once again, changing how the farms worked. And as we mentioned, uh, China's farms had already been consolidated into collectives during the first five-year plan. The Great Leap Forward planned to further consolidate these collectives into communes. Mao believed that bigger communes would be better economically and would encourage social equality. Every group in a commune had 30 or so families in it, and combined, the communes each had as many as 5,000 families. Each commune also had its own administration team at, at the top, a production brigade, which was kind of like the middle management layer, and the workers. These communes were, for the most part, governed at the provincial level. They actually tried various different strategies for governing, and that's where it eventually netted out. All in all, there were about 26,000 of these communes, and in the spring and summer of 1958, 98% of China's farms became part of a commune. In a few provinces, most notably Henan and Hebei, the commune model was taken to an extreme people relinquished all of their personal property. Villages were split up and residents lived in dormitories instead of their homes. Living conditions in these dormitories was often very poor and very overcrowded. In the model provinces, families were broken up too, and spouses and siblings were sent to different working assignments. Uh, In most places, people were fed in collective canteens. And in some of these provinces, uh, everyone's personal kitchen stuff was confiscated and either destroyed or used at the canteen to basically make people eat in the communal canteen. Not every commune got to this level with the dormitories and the confiscated utensils, but that was really the ideal. uh, Communal daycares, kindergartens, and nursing homes were also established to care for the very young and the very old. And this meant that domestic work, so feeding people, cleaning up the living spaces, caring for children and elders, had been collectivized. So women who had typically done this work uh, in family situations became part of the labor force in fields and factories instead. Those who still had children to look after were often given agricultural assignments closer to home, while women who had no children would be sent to factories to work. In addition, pretty much everywhere... Farmers were no longer allowed to keep personal farm plots to grow their own food. Mao made a tour of China in early 1958 in support of the Great Leap Forward, and he met with provincial leaders to convince them that it was really the way to go. Together with Liu Shaoqi, the party's second highest leader, Mao put together goals for production that were then broken down by province, and each of these goals had a maximum plan and a minimum plan. But when they told people what these goals were, they said that the 
uh, maximum was actually the minimum. And then when administrators told the working brigades what the goals were, they did the same thing. And then the production brigades did the same thing when they told the workers what their goals were. So essentially, because everybody was telling the people below them that their maximum target was really the minimum target, production goals quickly became astronomical. And that August, Chinese leadership added another element to the mix. In a utopian spirit, they encouraged the creation of so-called backyard steel furnaces in the communes. So in addition to agricultural work, the communes would be home to smaller-scale industrial efforts. So when farm workers had downtime, like when they were not producing as much in the agriculture side of things, they would then be working in these backyard operations. Plus, there were massive infrastructure projects in the works. New roads and railroads were built to move all of this additional food and products from place to place. This huge network of dams, reservoirs, and irrigation systems was built to try to manage the nation water, the nation's waterways and provide irrigation to all these new farms. In some places, it was almost like terraforming. There were attempts to fill entire lakes in, to dry out wetlands, and to, quote, tame the rivers, to turn every possible square inch of land into farmland. And running concurrently with this agricultural overhaul was a focus on continuing to expand China's existing industries. And all of this kind of had a whiff of feudalism about it. The workers were passing up their harvest to the commune administrators. They were passing things up to the greater government. Um, So it sort of reminds you of, of a medieval situation where people are passing up their work to the next layer. Uh, in 1958, reported agricultural production was tremendous, and output in the industrial sector jumped by 55%. And in 1959, it all started to fall apart. As you can imagine, thanks to these rapidly escalating production targets, the laborers who were doing all the work had to just work frantically, literally to the point of dropping from exhaustion at their posts. The administrators vastly overreported how big their harvests had been, so it would look like they had met their completely unreachable goals. The government, believing that they had a surplus based on these reports, gave the order for the communal canteens to basically serve a constant feast, and they kept selling grain to pay off war debts and pay for all this farm equipment that had been purchased, and continued to provide food and monetary aid to other nations as part of their foreign aid program. And because farmers were now working hard all year long, rather than offsetting the planting and harvesting seasons with months of leisure, people needed more food to eat than they had before. Consequently, China ran out of food, and the resulting famine was one of the negative consequences of the Great Leap Forward, and we're going to have a whole episode on that later on. And while it did definitely meaningfully add to China's infrastructure and, at least at first, increase its agricultural and industrial output, the Great Leap Forward had several negative consequences beyond just the famine issue. Disease rates really soared. Typhus outbreaks were frequent, but fortunately they were isolated really quickly, so they didn't turn into epidemics. Hepatitis and malaria became really widespread. Hygiene was a huge problem, especially among workers who were living in collective living situations. 
The Great Leap Forward years also saw a huge spike in both suicides and violent deaths as the situation became more desperate when people didn't have food to eat anymore. And a lot of the industrial work proved to be of inferior quality. The railroads that were being built were plagued with problems. The metals that were being smelted didn't hold up. Dams that had been built to tame the rivers collapsed. One dam broke in 1975 and drowned about 230,000 people. There were also problems with China's factory goods. The cost of all the materials that would be needed to scale up the factory's output had not really been factored into the plan very well, so a lot of these new goods were being made very poorly with also very shoddy materials that had been gotten for a low cost. Since China was exporting most of these new factory goods, the government wound up having to repay other nations when they complained that what they got was defective, mislabeled, or damaged. The cost was really enormous. Somewhere between 200 and 300 million yuan in 1959 alone. The continual escalation of production targets and the obvious crackdown on dissent combined to inspire an enormous amount of corruption and fraud at basically every layer of government as people tried to conceal what was going wrong and just how badly the situation had derailed. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. You can practice every day because you're working on things. Like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing, but when you're competing, you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time. It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power. It's a lot of mental power. I think that's why it's so draining and to shift gears after every event. Like, oh, I just ran the hurdles. Now I have to think about high jump. How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can can be really be difficult. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Leap Forward also contributed to a split in Sino-Soviet relations. Although the Soviet Union had initially supported China's effort to collectivize the farms and transform itself into a leading communist nation, Nikita Khrushchev eventually became openly critical of the Great Leap Forward, particularly the People's Communes, and Mao did not like this criticism. Also, Mao was motivated by an unstated desire for China to surpass the Soviet Union and surpass it by a pretty hefty margin as a socialist nation. While he didn't say this out loud, this is pretty obvious to people. Khrushchev wrote in his own memoirs that he saw that China was headed for disaster and did everything that he could to dissuade Mao from the path that he was on. By October of 1959, the relationship between the two nations had really cooled. Although it was not declared officially over, the policies and practices of the Great Leap Forward mostly stopped in 1961. A new set of rules, which was called Work Regulations on Rural Communes, also called the 60 Articles, came out to govern how the communes were run. This put an end to the dining halls and the backyard steel operations. It also allowed people to have personal plots of land again so they could grow their own personal food rather than relying on the government to provide for them. The people's communes, which had been created for the Great Leap Forward, 
were eventually abolished in 1982. And as we said earlier, this also had the consequence of a really major famine, which is going to be the next installment in this miniseries. Do you have a bit of listener mail for us? Yes, I do. This is actually two different posts from our Facebook wall, and I had a conversation with each of these two people to kind of clarify what I was trying to say, so I thought probably I should clarify it for other people also. One is from David, who said, I heard your podcast about the coal miners. Great episode, but we have to lay off word sensitivity. In my opinion, the only people who should determine whether a word or label is offensive or derogatory are those the term is directly applied to. I'm talking about the term redneck specifically and anything else generally. We're given a constitutional right to freedom of speech, but no amendment protects us from being offended. Keep up the great work. I've been listening constantly for several years now, and I don't plan to stop. And the other note was from John, who said, I strongly, strongly object to your mistreatment of the label redneck, acting like it is some horrible slur. Maybe things are different in Georgia than they are in Kent County, Maryland. So uh, as I mentioned, I had like conversations with both of them to kind of clarify what I meant. Uh, we alluded in the previous episode on the Battle of Blair Mountain, um, which Holly read part of the outline, but I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> those were my words. Um that a lot of people use the word redneck as really an epithet. Like when I hear people who would not call themselves redneck call other people that word, it is often with a whole lot of venom. Oh, uh, yeah. Holly. Yeah. Holly has pointed out that it is often preceded by the word stupid. Um, it is often also, in my experience, preceded by some profanity. Um So I'm not at all saying that people should not use the word to describe themselves if they would like to. Like both, uh, both John and David kind of pointed me to communities who use the word and it's not meant as a judgment at all. Um, but I hear so many people who would not identify themselves that way use it about other people in a really disparaging word. And a lot of these are folks who would really consider themselves otherwise to be socially conscious and progressive people. And they don't seem to quite register that what they are doing is judging someone else's worth as a human being, a lot of times based on nothing other than their accent and the clothes they have on. So that's where I was coming from with that. Like, Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, that like uh, in relation to other words that are sometimes considered slurs by some people and not by others, that like I'm very, uh, you know, reluctant. I don't want to trim the linguistic tree every time a jerk uses a word in a way that it was not necessarily intended. But at the same time, I think everybody does have to be a little bit mindful and just not yeah. be a jerk. Right. I was... I was definitely not advocating for banning words from the English language. Uh, and I think usually speaking for myself personally, if if I say you shouldn't use that word, there's sort of an undertone of like, if you are mindful about what you're saying, really. Yeah. Um, where like where it gets uh, into some frustration territory for me is that having uh, lived in the South for almost 40 years and in the deep South for more than a decade. Uh, I, it's pretty evident that Southern people are one of the very, very few groups in the United States who it's still okay to make just disparaging, horrible comments about from a social context. Like 
if someone were to make a racist comment, a lot of times the people around them would call them on it and say, hey, that's not cool. But if somebody makes a joke about Southerners being ignorant, a lot of times there is not that kind of, hey, that's a stereotype and it's not cool. Um, So to clarify all that, use words mindfully. Examine in yourself what you're (laughs) saying about someone before you use epithets about them is all I'm saying about that. Yeah. And if you're going to use them, at least understand what you're doing. You might be a yeah. jerk, but you're a jerk that understands what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you can, t- if you're intending to be a jerk, using epithets and slurs against other people is a pretty easy way to do that. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. We have a pretty new still spreadshirt store where you can buy shirts and phone cases and all kinds of other stuff, and that is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com. You can put into the search bar socialism or communism to read how socialism works or how communism works. Or you can come to our website where, as we said before, we will have all the sources that were used for this episode if you want to learn more about the details. Um, you can do all of that and a whole lot more at our websites, which are HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.